0: Well, welcome to uh, the School of Theology, second session on the Trinity together, and uh, I have uh, brought the books back again. If you want to have a tour from the Reformation to the modern day uh, on the doctrine of God, particularly on the Trinity, we can uh, look at those during the break. Uh, also, uh, I have an apology to make on a housekeeping matter. I thought I had extra copies of McLeod's Shared Life available, if anybody else still needed a copy, and... Uh, I don't know what happened when I was in Tyler, Texas. You almost had kind of a wild time here Sunday because they all disappeared. I presume that means they've sold or something. If anybody else needs a copy, let me know and I'll order some special. All right, so we need one. Sounds to me, I usually order in lots of five, so I'll see if I can get uh, half a dozen or so. And that'll be good. All right, well, let's open up with a word of prayer. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for the blessings that we have in Christ our Lord, Uh, for we know that you have indeed come and had company with us in your Son. You have sent your Son into the world for sinners like us, and he has taken on a human body and a human soul. Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. And as your children, as a part of your creation, we are in such need of a Savior a Savior fitted to us, a Savior able to help and aid, uh, to substitute for us, to identify with us, and to give us all that we need to live to your glory. And so we ask now that you'll bless us as we think your thoughts after you and your word. Uh, we particularly pray you would bless us as we think about the doctrine of the Trinity. It's the highest and most holy uh, ground in all the Christian faith. And we pray, O oh Lord, uh, that you would bless us as we walk upon it. Uh, keep our feet steady on the word. And help us as we come to meditate upon your word and try to synthesize different aspects of it to stay in that straight and narrow path that you have given, that we might give glory to Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. All right. Welcome, welcome. Welcome to everybody. I'm gonna go ahead and shut this because of the noise. We're not locking you out, brother. <laughs> Welcome. You're doing great. That's no problem. Well, we have been looking together at the topic of the Trinity. This is our second week, and we saw last week that... uh, uh, the doctrine of the Trinity has its place in the overall big picture of Christian theology, particularly it's in the doctrine of God, which is between Scripture and man and the whole uh, unfolding places or loci of Christian theology. And we notice that in the doctrine of God, there's, uh, there's some facts about knowing God, His name and nature, and normally the Trinity, both the unity and diversity of the Trinity is dealt with in the middle of the doctrine of God, uh, between his name and nature on the one hand and his work on the other, his work of uh, decree and creation and providence, and that we are intentionally taking uh, a slice out of the doctrine of God in this little shortened period that we have. Now, there actually is a good theological reason to do it this way, and there's a very important practical reason to do it this way, Uh, The theological reason is because there's always been this back-and-forth tug-of-war between the church in its eastern manifestation and the church in its western manifestation about which you study first. Whether you study, as the East does, starting with the Trinity, the three persons and working your way back to the one nature, or whether you do it the other way, which the western church has primarily done, which is studying the nature of God, both from the scriptures and from Uh, the creation around us through general revelation, and then working your way toward the three persons. And each one of those approaches has uh, its own advantages and disadvantages. Uh, And so we let practical matters decide uh, which one of these two routes to take, this time in our cycle through the School of Theology. And can anyone guess what the practical reason why we have chosen the Trinity, rather than the balance of the doctrine of God, for the fall semester is any idea, any guesses? We have less time. We have less time because of the uh, because of the construction that's going on. Uh, we have to uh, be ready, perhaps, to have some uh, greater flexibility near the uh, between Christmas and Thanksgiving, and therefore we decided to go ahead and do the Trinity before Thanksgiving, and uh, leave the Doctrine of God until the spring. So it all has to do with Duratec, that big sign out front, which has nothing directly to do with the Trinity. <laughs> Uh, how do we know God? We said, well, we know him through revelation, general and special, but the scripture is normative and that history is explorative. And we showed last time uh, that each one of these different stages of church history uh, is important for our understanding of the doctrine of God and therefore the Trinity. The scripture is normative, uh, the New Testament and Old Testament uh, speak to us of the Trinity, the Old Testament in shadow, the New Testament in fuller uh, reality, and. Uh, with regard to the early church, the Trinity is dealt with and in the medieval church, the church is the challenges to its understanding of the doctrine of uh, God and particularly the Trinity grows. Uh, there's a, a strong emphasis in the Reformation upon the doctrine of the Trinity and a lot of confusion in the modern age and so that's one good reason to study this together. And in our course where we've looked at some introductory matters and tonight we begin looking at the biblical data about the Trinity particularly, uh, the hints of plurality in the Old Testament, and some general teaching in the New. We have about 65 slides to get through uh, in these five weeks, and we covered, uh, oh, about a dozen last time we were together. And so that means if we don't get to 24 or 25 tonight, uh, then there's going to be uh, something of a chase on uh, later in the uh, semester together. Are we going to leave the front
1: lights on?
0: Before... That's a good idea. Let me cut that off. Thank you. Uh, let's see, that's an interesting... Yeah, there is... Somebody thinks 74 is good. Let me see if I can bump it down a little bit. I don't know if that's going to hold it. Oh, it just clicked. That's good. That's good. Okay. Now, when you get too cold, let me know. So, we're going to look tonight at hints of plurality in the Old Testament and general teaching in the New. And then next time we're together, we'll look at the deity of Christ and uh, Deity of the Holy Spirit after that. And then finally, we'll look at historical development and positive uh, presentation uh, of the doctrine together. So that's where we're headed. And we immediately go uh, to Augustine, who said, The doctrine of the Trinity is latent, but not patent in the Old Testament. Who, who can tell us what that means? Latent and patent. It's patent. It's latent in the Old Testament. Let's see. It is latent, but not patent. Uh, in the Old Testament. Is
1: that the proper pronunciation? That
0: word? Which
1: word?
0: Uh, it is if you're in Britain. <laughs>
1: okay.
0: And we're not in Britain, but it's one of these words that, uh, that's where I learned it, so that's how I use okay. it. My, my mother never taught it to me as a child. Would it be a patent? patent?
1: Well, without a T. In English,
0: <clears throat> patent. Patent. Okay. Yeah. And, All right. Uh, and what does this mean?
1: It's latent because it's... You can't see it in the Old Testament until you read and understand the New Testament. And the resurrection salvation
0: do so. All right. So the, the Trinity is more visible in the New Testament. And it's more, uh, it's present, but it's not present in a jump out at you, fully disclosed kind of way. The fuller disclosure of the details of the doctrine of the Trinity occur in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, you have the ground prepared and a growing expectation. Now, let me ask the trick question. Does that mean that the New Testament has the Trinity present, and in the Old Testament times, there was no Trinity? All right, so why do you say no?
1: We're in Genesis, we're told that God said let's make man an hour in
0: So from the very beginning, there we have a hint of plurality, as we'll see in a moment. So the ground uh, in the Old Testament is Trinitarian in the sense that the Trinity is present and uh, uh, the petticoat of the doctrine of the Trinity sticks out from underneath uh, the outer garments. That is, you see these hints, and in light of the New Testament, you can see them jump off the page. But for an Old Testament believer, as special revelation was unfolding, They would have a growing knowledge that there was a a plurality within the Godhead, although there's also a very strong fundamental unity. And they would be trying to figure out how to fit these things together. Now, neither in the Old Testament or in the New Testament does the word Trinity appear. Does that mean that there is no doctrine of the Trinity in the Bible because the word Trinity is never used? Jamie, shaking your head, why do you say no?
2: Well, because Trinity is a convenient label that was given to the doctrine. The actual <clears throat> fact of God being three persons in one is clearly exhibited. It's, it's like the difference between... Actually, I would say it's much more real in the Bible than in uh, theological work. It's like the difference between actually being in the jungle and reading the Encyclopedia article in the J volume.
0: All right, so... So God, the triune God, is present in the Old and New Testament. And the facts about the doctrine of the Trinity are given to us in the Scripture. And we can synthesize them as we compare Scripture with Scripture into a coherent understanding of that basic doctrine. But the (coughs) label for it occurs as that synthesis occurs uh, in church history. Uh, That term is used... Uh, not during the time of Jesus, not during the time of the prophets, uh, not during the time of the historical books it's used after the time of the resurrection of christ it's used after the time uh, of the of the uh, apostles. It is used in the early church as a way of as a summary label or title of the doctrine uh, and so uh, just like you could have a big thriving city and if you didn't if you found yourself waking up in that city and you had no idea where you were. Just because you didn't know the name of it, um, Austin or New York or Los Angeles, that doesn't mean that it's not a city. Uh, the label can come later, and that's perfectly fine. So there's a distinction between the label or the identifier term for something versus the substance of it itself. The, um, uh, the little cartoon here says uh, it's uh, Moses uh, speaking to the Lord, holding the uh, Ten Commandments. These are plenty complicated enough for now why don't we save the Trinity stuff for later? And that's a humorous way of describing the fact that God um, grows uh, our understanding of the Trinity through the scriptures because it's good for us. Welcome. Welcome. He grows our understanding because that's good for us. He's infinite, eternal and unchangeable. And he doesn't he doesn't have any problem understanding the doctrine of the Trinity. He's God. But we're finite creatures, and our knowledge grows through time. And so he gives just a little bit until we get a foundational basic orientation to one God and then hints of plurality. And he builds upon that, and our knowledge grows so that by the time we get to the New Testament, there is on display a full uh, and diverse teaching about the Trinity, which we then have to synthesize together, all the different verses and parts. Uh, there is plurality in divine creation. And Jim's already alluded to us, uh, let us make man in our own image. From uh, uh, Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. It's the royal we, as it were, uh, but that royal we is present and is a grammatical feature uh, because God himself, you see, is triune. So even our grammar and language is reflective because we're made in the image of God, is reflective something. Uh, ...of the divine being there. And there is a plurality in divine providence. In Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 10, uh, we see that the Lord is described as controlling providence in a multiple kind of way. So that's where we ended last time with that cartoon and with uh, those two particular verses and emphases at the bottom of the page. It's a hint of plurality, but the Bible goes on with lots more information about hence a plurality, and as the data begins to build, we begin to see that uh, God is really up to teaching us something uh, about the Trinity. For example, we see in the Scriptures phenomenon of theophanies and the angel of the Lord. A theophany is an appearance of God, and uh, the angel of the Lord is a very unique character that appears in the pages of the Pentateuch over and over again. Uh, for example... Uh, Genesis three, seven to eleven. Can I get your help here? I think this will uh, help us if we can move through these uh, with some speed. We've all had a great preaching series on the book of Genesis, and so uh, I think the congregation is uh, is more up to speed on these passages. Uh, Genesis three, if somebody can look that up, uh, verses seven to eleven, and then uh, Genesis sixteen, eleven to thirteen, uh, Genesis thirty two, twenty four to thirty two, and uh, Judges 2, 1-5. Uh, to 5. We'll just start with, uh, with those four particular passages. Genesis 3, 7-11. to 11, If somebody would read that for us.
1: Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves like point blocks. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife,
0: Here in this passage, we see Adam walking with the Lord, all right? So there we see uh, some physical manifestation of God, some apparent manifestation of God that he walks with Adam in the cool of the day. Somehow uh, he is visible, he has a a, uh, conversation with him, and for a being who who is spirit and has no body parts and passions, uh, that begins raising... uh, Questions in our mind, exactly what did he look like? How does this take place? Where does the voice come from? Does he have a mouth? Does he have a tongue, tongue and teeth? Does he look like a human or an animal? Who, who is this? How, how is this manifestation appearing? We have a lot more questions than we have answers. Uh, but uh, the one reality of God, is, uh, some, some presentation of that reality is being made to our first father, Adam, in the garden. Genesis 16, verses 11 to 13 Uh, is Hagar. Somebody would uh, read that for us.
1: And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant, and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell ever against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord, who spoke to her. You are a God
2: of seeing, for she said, Truly here, I have seen him
0: who looks after me. Now notice the irony here on a grammatical level in this passage. In verse eleven, it's the angel of the Lord who is speaking uh, to Hagar. But then in verse thirteen, who does she identify this person as that she that is speaking to her? Thou art a God who sees. And so She's referring to it as him, and she's referring to uh, God, and referring to the name. So she calls on the name of the Lord who spoke with her. On the one hand, the angel of the Lord is speaking with her. It's something something I said. Angel of the Lord is speaking with her, but yet then Hagar immediately slips over into the language of calling the angel of the Lord God. Okay? All right, Genesis uh, 32 uh, verses 24 to 32.
4: And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. And the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob. He touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day was as broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, "Your name shall, be no, shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with man, and have prevailed." And Jacob asked him, "Please tell me your name." But he said, "Why is that? You ask, why is it that you ask my name?" And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, "For I have seen God face to face." And it, my wife has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh.
0: Now, again, this passage, the grammar is so interesting because in language, vocabulary that's used, because we're told in verse 24, a man wrestled with Jacob. And we're told uh, uh, that uh, there's an inquiry and dialogue. Uh, what is your name? And uh, is asked by this man. And then the man begins pronouncing a change in Jacob's name from Jacob to Israel. Because you have striven with God and with man and it prevailed. So on the one hand, it's a man. On the other hand, you've striven with God and with man. But that may well be a hint back to his earlier life his life before this point where he was always striving uh, with other men. And then Jacob's reflection on it is, I have seen God face to face, and he hasn't died. And so he names the place, uh, face of God, Penuel. So again, there appears to be some physical manifestation of the Godhead or of God. And uh, there's a unity here about this. Uh, but it's God who is spirit uh, appearing in some kind of physical form. Once you begin piling these up, it, uh, the theologians begin calling these uh, theophanies, uh, an appearance of God in some kind of human appearance or physical form uh, before the stable incarnation occurs. Uh, the technical terms are is called pre-incarnate manifestations of the second person of the Trinity. That is, the one who becomes incarnate, Jesus Christ, our Lord, is the logical one of the three persons uh, to make appearances before the incarnation to help prepare His people's understanding and expectation of an incarnation. So there's no uh, there's no hint here that. Uh, uh, that this uh, physical manifestation of this man is permanent at this point. He seems to take on human attribute for a period of time, but not necessarily uh, a permanent taking of that nature in a personal way as we have uh, in Bethlehem. The permanent status of the incarnation now where God the Son has assumed a human body and human soul to himself is something that is never, never reversed. Uh, he is, right this moment... Uh, in his his human body, resurrected and therefore glorified, but it's a real human body, it has real human substance to it, though glorified, and he's sitting on the very throne of heaven. And so rightly theologians say that the dust of the earth is sitting on the throne of heaven. That a human body uh, that is made of the dust of the earth has now been glorified and is eternally united with the uh, Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, and still is his. He has a human body and a human soul. That's why right now, uh, as we go through our lives, it's not that we used to have a high priest, a great high priest who can understand us. It's why we now have a high priest. And that's important to know. Um, I woke up last night. Uh, well, I woke up a little early. Let's put it positively Um I woke up about an hour before the alarm went off I don't know if that sometimes happens to you and I ached see I don't know why I just my my arm and my shoulder just felt funny I I just I just didn't feel like myself and and it's at times like that where your body's just aching it's like you slept too hard and didn't move stayed in one position that you begin realizing that it's very very good that the Lord has taken on flesh and dwelt among us because he knows what it's like to live with these old bones now, the young people out there are looking at me like, what are you talking about? <laughs> Guys in your 20s, you've never had that happen, but you just wait. When you turn 50 and older, it'll happen to you. It'll happen to you. Um, and the same thing is true about our souls, about our emotional life, uh, which is the part of the incorporeal aspect of us, our spiritual life. We have, a, we have a Savior and a Lord and a great high priest who understands the temptations that we go through, not just on an impulse level on the outside, but also in their soulish dimension on the inside. You know, uh, a temptation on the outside is bad enough, but that struggle that goes on inside of us is even, even more serious. And so it's on the outside and on the inside that our incarnate Lord can sympathize with us. And these are examples in the Old Testament of the Lord making an entrance onto the stage that's not yet permanent, but it's to begin drop by drop by drop helping us to have a taste for and be prepared for an understanding in uh, a fuller manifestation of the Incarnation later. And that's not just important to Christology, it's also important uh, to the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, Judges uh, 2, 1-5, to five, if somebody would read that for us.
2: Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall become a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and asked. And they called the name of the place Bochum, and they sacrificed there to the Lord.
0: Now this title, the angel of the Lord, came up from Gilgal. This this title, this formal title, which in most of our English translations is capitalized in some way, this, this particular title is indicative of or connected with these fleeting appearances of God, where he appears to his people, he speaks to his people, particularly leadership or priestly cra- uh, class, and uh, speaks to them of his covenant and the next stage of the covenant of grace unfolding. Uh, we see this in the book of Judges over and over again. He meets with Gideon in Judges 6. Uh, Samson is announced by him in Judges chapter 13. We won't look at these last two references. Uh, you can look at them on your own. But the point here is is that we have... Um, Not only hints of plurality in the Old Testament, but also of theophany of God with us, of God face to face with us. And these are two different sets of data in the Bible that we have to synthesize together for a proper understanding of what God is overall teaching in this area. And it's much easier uh, to synthesize these things when we stand on the other side of the resurrection than the one before in the light of the resurrection in the light of uh, Pentecost and the the fuller understanding of the scriptures uh, the greater uh, benefit of having the apostles under the influence of the Holy Spirit interpreting the Old Testament uh, it's much easier for us to see uh, how this synthesis of plurality on the one hand and theophany on the other comes together to teach the doctrine of the Trinity so it's latent but not patent that is Details of the doctrine of the Trinity, I could not prove narrowly from just the Old Testament. I need the New Testament to give theological proof of the greater confessional and creedal uh, dimensions of the doctrine. But that's not to say that they're not things in the Old Testament and earlier on that are in complete harmony with and supporting of and preparatory for our appreciation and understanding of the Trinity uh, once the full light of it comes in the New Testament. I remember being in New College, Edinburgh, uh, and uh, it was an interesting place to study because you see, I wish I had a picture of it right here to show you, on the mound in Edinburgh, you have two theological uh, schools right next to one another. You have New College, which is a part of the University of Edinburgh, and there are about 30 to 40 uh, major schools Seminary professors or divinity professors there. Uh, Old Testament, New Testament, uh, church history, uh, practical theology, systematic theology. Uh, Some of the best minds uh, in Europe there theologically on that faculty. Now the faculty is not committed to a particular uh, theological confession. And therefore you get everything under the sun that is present there, right, left, and center. It's a very diverse kind of place and uh, thankfully uh because of british and scottish culture and because of the history of that institution a young evangelical can go there and they don't find themselves uh uh attacked or uh uh failed just because they don't happen to share liberal values by liberal professors uh, the Brits are just uh disgustingly um fair and balanced and honest. I mean, even an evangelical pro- professor on the faculty, and they've, they've always had them, even an evangelical professor, if a liberal left, would just feel in a British way this overwhelming need to hire another liberal to keep the diverse marketplace. That's just the way they think about education. Uh, thankfully, we do, do it a little bit differently in America. But, but uh, next door is a denominational seminary of the Free Church Church. Of Scotland, and there you have uh, ministers of the Free Church, or people chosen by their presbytery after strict examination, who were teaching in each one of the departments. And so I had a, I was taking my um, uh, degree at the more liberal place that was part of the Mainline University and offered a Ph.D. But I had my office and was hanging out with the guys uh, next door because uh, I could have lots of good Christian fellowship there, with like-minded brethren. And every once in a while, I would run into somebody from New College that would be fascinated. Uh, with uh, where my office was in this other school, and they would say, "Can I go to church with you? You go to Free Church, don't you?" And I would, I would take them, Shirley, and I would take them to church. And I remember there was a gal studying there, an American, and uh, her great interest was in Bonhoeffer. And I know everybody's just gaga about Bonhoeffer today because of a recent biography. But uh, you know, Bonhoeffer was uh, not committed to the inerrancy of Scripture, and neither was this Southern Baptist gal. And we ended up uh, uh, having her and her husband in church. And she turned to me afterwards and she said. Well, I don't think I've ever heard a sermon on the Trinity from the Old Testament in my life. And I could tell she wasn't happy. And uh, she walked out. Uh, my point here is is that people are confused over this latent but not patent uh, in the Old Testament. The, the Trinity is there, uh, but it's there in the form of, of early hints. It's not there in a fully synthesized uh, and fully disclosed form that's not a problem, it's just an issue of development. It's okay for God to develop. For example, um, is the tabernacle the fullest, uh, clearest, and most uh, solid development? Uh, Or is the temple complex, which later came after it in its wake, is that a fuller and uh, stronger and uh, more clear uh, preparing of the way for the incarnation? You know, the temple is bigger and grander and there's more glory involved in it versus the tent. And the two have a lot of continuity with each other, but the temple supersedes the tabernacle, and uh, development like that is okay, because there's no there's no hint of teaching in the Bible that the the tabernacle was somehow wrong or immoral or or they didn't understand God right. They, they built it the way God said to, and He intended it for a certain period to prepare for the permanent temple that would come. Uh, that would, it it itself would have a, a terminus point uh, because the uh, Real temple came, even the, the incarnate Son of God, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So development is not a bad thing. That's what I'm trying to emphasize. Now, there are other hints of plurality in the Old Testament. Uh, for example, B.B. Uh, Warfield does a nice job for us in his article on the Trinity. Um, let me encourage you to uh, make a visit sometime to bbwarfield.com. Just look at the website, and there you will find easy access to uh, many of his writings, which are in the public domain. And there's an article there on the Trinity where he argues from Psalm 33 and Isaiah 61 that all things owe their existence to a threefold cause. And because God is creator, Warfield sees this as an indication in the created order of the fact that the Creator was triune. Uh, I think the more interesting place to see such an argument is actually in more empirical data. Uh, I have a copy of John Frame's book, The Doctrine of God, the big thick one in the middle right here down on the front table. And he has an appendix in which he has cataloged all the instances of threeness uh, that he has ever read in literature or heard in theological lectures, or etc., Trying to show that uh, there is some natural threeness to the way that man's mind operates and the way that we analyze the created order and etc. And he points back to the fact that we're made in the image of a God who is triune. Uh, this is a natural kind of argument, as is being given in the special revelation in Psalm 33 and Isaiah 61. Uh, but there is a point there. It's called, uh, in Latin, the vestigia trinitatis, a vestige of the Trinity a fingerprint, as it were, of God's triune nature, some hint of that uh, which is revealed or is, is evident in the created order. Is this going to convince somebody necessarily of uh, uh, Nicene Constantinopolitan Trinitarianism? No, but it might help prepare the way for somebody to recognize that this unity and plurality and this threeness all point to or are supportive of and not contradictory of a Christian doctrine of the Trinity. Um, also, there is an indication in the Scripture around the idea of uh, hints of plurality that there are personal subsistences in God. That is, that, uh, that God is more complex uh, than it might first seem. Uh, for example, in Isaiah 11, the first two verses, uh, we see a reference to the Spirit of God. Whereas in Genesis 1-3, Uh, we have a reference to the Word of God. And in Proverbs 8, the wisdom of God. And in Exodus um, chapter 40 and Isaiah 66, to the Shekinah. Let's look at Proverbs chapter 8 uh, as a very historic early church uh, favorite example uh, of uh, personal subsistence within God. It's a literary feature, but in Proverbs chapter 8, uh, the way that wisdom is spoken of is so heavily personified that uh, it seems to be a hint that there is some sort of personal subsistence within God that is labeled or is able to speak of uh, wisdom in a very personal way. Does not wisdom call and understanding lift up her voice? On the top of the heights beside the way, where the paths meet, she takes her stand, Beside the city gates and the opening to the city, the entrance of the doors, she cries out. So, there is some personification uh, of this aspect or attribute of God that's being conveyed here by Solomon in Proverbs chapter 8. So, so then we get language um, in the first person. And third person, an I-thou relationship begins to be revealed. To you, O men, I call and my voice is to the sons of men o native ones discern prudence and o fools discern wisdom listen for i shall speak noble things and the opening of my lips will produce right things and so this wisdom of god is speaking to us and is revealing to us something of god on the one hand and the nature of the world around us on the other For my mouth will utter truth, and wickedness is an abomination to my lips. And the utterances of my mouth are in righteousness. There is nothing crooked or perverted in them. They are all straightforward to him who understands, and right to those who find knowledge. Take my instruction, and not silver, and knowledge rather than choicest gold. For wisdom is better than jewels, and all desirable things cannot compare with her. You see, the sustained uh, monologue... Uh, And in that monologue, uh, an I-thou relationship, a reference to the other uh, from a personalized center, uh, ended up leading early church uh, fathers to come to the conclusion that here in Proverbs chapter 8 was a very clear ground preparing the Old Testament church to be ready to recognize and understand and appreciate more fully the doctrine of the Trinity when it came in its fuller light after the resurrection. The amazing thing about the, about the New Testament is, is there doesn't seem to be great strain over the doctrine of the Trinity. Jesus talks about his Father very naturally. And so you have the Son of God speaking of God the Father in a very natural kind of way. And people aren't raising their hands saying, hold it. What do you mean Father? Who's that you're talking about? Oh, you're the Son? What does that mean? They, they seem to know, even his enemies know, that when he talks of God as his father in that way, that implies that he himself is equal with God. And so in the dialogue back and forth about the father and himself as the son, even that contains uh, vectors that point to the unity of God. And the fact that not only the father has the attributes of God, But also the Son has the attributes of God. And Jesus also speaks of the Spirit. He speaks of the paraclete uh, who will come. I will not leave you uh, fatherless. And so he promises to send uh, the Spirit of God to aid and abet them in their walk. And that he would do a number of things for them. For example, we saw uh, last semester as we looked at the doctrine of Scripture. That in John um, 16 and 18 we're told that he will bring to your remembrance what I've said. He will lead you into all truth, and he will disclose what is to come. This paraclete, this Holy Spirit, this helper. And so the Holy Spirit is seen as one who is able to do for us what only God is able to do. He is able to reveal God, to reveal truthfully the future, uh, to reveal the truth for us, uh, even about Jesus Christ our Lord. So, each one of these uh, examples in Isaiah 11, Genesis 1, Proverbs 8, Exodus 40, and Isaiah 66 are evidence of a personal subsistence within the Godhead. And then another hint of plurality is we have evidence of a coming divine Messiah. Let's look at, the, at these three Psalms uh, real quickly. We won't be able to read all of them, but Psalm 96 is a psalm Uh, that is messianic in its emphasis. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless His name. Proclaim the good tidings of His salvation uh, day to day. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory of His name. Do you see how there's a conversation here to God and then a discussion of His Shekinah or His glory uh, in a way, which seems to take on a very personal kind of nature. And in light of the New Testament's use of the Psalms, it becomes clear as we continue on that uh, uh, before the Lord, for He is coming, He is coming to judge the earth, He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in His faithfulness. And so this one who is the promised Savior of His people uh, also is the one who comes to judge, and there's a personal... Um, uh, personified nature to it, and he's exercising the power of deity. Uh, Psalm 98 is another pl- another place uh, in, the, in the nine verses of this song. Sing to the Lord a new song, for he's done wonderful things. His right hand and his holy arm have gained the victory for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He's revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations, He has remembered his loving kindness and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our Lord. And so uh, the Lord is coming to judge the earth. In verse 9, he will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. So Psalm 96 and Psalm 98, complementary to each other, and preparing for the further light that comes in Psalm 110. Uh, Perhaps the most referenced Old Testament Um, Messianic, prophetic passages of all are in this psalm. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. So here is an inner Trinitarian dialogue. The Lord says to my Lord. And so the question becomes, is it God speaking to David? Or is it God, the Father, speaking to God, the Son? And as we and we're only going to determine that by the particular content. Sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. The Lord will stretch forth the strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of thine enemies. Thy people will volunteer freely in the day of thy power and wholly array from the womb of the dawn. Thy youth are to thee as the dew. And so here we begin seeing a vista uh that this can't just be David. This is someone grander than David that David himself pointed to. Otherwise, how do you explain explain verse 4? The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Thou art a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And as soon as we get to verse 4, it's a slam dunk case. It's like Michael Jordan jumping up above the basket and just with a smile on his face slamming the basketball down into it. Why? Why? Why is verse 4 a slam dunk that it can't be King David?
2: He's not a priest at all. He wasn't even allowed to build the temple.
0: That's right. He's a king prophet. He's not a priest. He has no right to take the priestly office to himself. He's not a priest after the order of Melchizedek. He's not a priest at all. He couldn't be a priest. And only Jesus Christ is prophet, priest, and king. David foreshadows him in the sense that he has two of the offices, but nobody else has all three of the offices. And so this is a messianic psalm. It's a psalm of David about Jesus. A psalm of David that he wrote under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And yes, since he himself is a shadow of, is a type of Christ, uh, points to Christ in some aspects of his life, but he falls short, that particular verse makes it very clear that he is not the fulfillment of this passage, only Jesus is. So then we go back to verse 1 and we go, wow. We're being let in on a private conversation between God the Father and God the Son. Um, You know, presidents get in a lot of trouble because of open, open mics. Their private thoughts being revealed. More profound than that is the private dialogue that goes on between, a, between royalty, a king and a queen. More profound than that is the inner trinitarian communication and dialogue of love and light and life between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. God did not have to reveal this to us, but he chooses to reveal it to us so that we might more appreciate his triune nature and the one in whose image we have been made. This kind of dialogue lets us know a little bit about, maybe a profound amount about, how to live together as human beings, how to live together as husbands and wives, how to live together as parents and children. Uh, Because all of the human relationships that we have are but echoes of that root and foundational relationship between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we could spend a lot of time studying this dialogue and the dynamics between the two persons in order to more greatly appreciate how to live together as husband and wife or parent and child. But we don't have time for that tonight. Uh, it, uh, it just uh, goes on and speaks uh, of the uh, triumph of the son that his father has ordained and the glory then that comes to the son. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. You know, he defeats his enemies and he defeats them so thoroughly that he can just kind of sit down and drink from the brook, doesn't have to spend his all his time worrying about whether there uh, is some vestige of his enemy of the enemy army coming to harass him, and harm him or his people. He has total triumph and victory, after he judges the nations, filling them with corpses and scattering the chief over a broad, the chief men over a broad country. He is peaceful as he drinks from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he lifts up his head. He is the king and master of all he surveys. Satan said, all this is mine. Just bow down and worship me. And Jesus knew that he would indeed inherit all those things by the labor of his own hands, not by the gift of the devil, uh, as he sought obedience to his heavenly Father. So, Yes? In
1: that first one, the Lord says to my Lord, the first Lord... It's all caps and the
0: second one's not. That's because in, that's a way the English translations key us into the fact that there are two different names of God being used here. One being the, Jew, the uh, Jewish name for God and the other being the Semitic name for God. And uh, uh, that difference in choice of titles to use for God uh, heightens and dramatizes the importance of recognizing that it's two persons of the Trinity. Um, As a matter of fact, there are schools of interpretation where people, in effect, open up their Hebrew Bible, their Bible, and they have uh, multiple markers, and they mark all the names of God, uh, 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 same names for God in one color, and then they go back through and take a second name for God and and mark that in another color, and they they watch the patterns. And unfortunately, when people first began to notice that, uh, you had the theory grow up. Ah, well, Genesis uses uh, multiple different... Titles are names for God and therefore uh, there must have been multiple different authors and therefore Moses couldn't have written the book and therefore that means it's very late dated rather than early dated like it's like it claims and this is a nice work of fiction. It doesn't tell us anything about history and uh, there's just one little subtle assumption you have to make to swallow all that and that is that Moses was an idiot and that God was not really able to inspire Uh, because at the end of the day. All of us have that degree of sophistication. I wish I had a catalog of all the pet names that uh, my grandfather used for my grandmother. Uh, He did not, for some reason, always refer to her as Luna. That was her real name. Um, uh, Sweetie, Honey Pie, I heard all sorts of things. And uh, the use of those different titles uh, does not mean that she had six husbands. It just means that my grandfather was not an idiot, and he knew how to communicate like the rest of us do. Good question. So this is a quick survey of Old Testament uh, hints of plurality. Uh, I'm not making uh, a stronger argument than that. As a matter of fact, I think a stronger argument can be made. I'll leave that to others. But I'm just helping you gain some appreciation for the ground that has been prepared here. And we have to move on because we're only at slide 16 and we need to get through a few more. Uh, When it comes to the New Testament, uh, the New Testament revelation of the Trinity comes as the New Testament communicates to us about salvation. You know, it's even true of the Incarnation. Uh, God does not give us a philosophical treatise on the nature of deity and the nature of humanity and the compatibility of the two. In a human hypostasis. He he does not have a a chapter on such philosophical matters. Uh, I like Bob Stacy. And one reason why I like Bob Stacy is because I don't think he likes all that kind of philosophical stuff any more than I do. I'm not highly impressed by it. Um, It's interesting to know that the technical philosophical use of the term substance does not limit itself to something that's hard or has shape but also includes things that are spirit, even though that doesn't sound very substantial in our vocabulary. It's just a very careful, definitional way of speaking. But at the end of the day, the Bible communicates to us at the point of our greatest need, which is not to tickle our minds with high and fancy uh, ideas. God addresses directly our need of salvation, and he communicates to us Christian doctrine particularly key doctrines like the Trinity and the Incarnation, as he's teaching that to us. There is not a a book of the New Testament or the Old Testament entitled The Trinity, Everything You've Always Wanted to Know, but We're Afraid to Ask. God does not present it that way. What God does is he speaks to us of his great covenant of grace. He speaks to us of the salvation that comes in Jesus Christ. And as he speaks to us of that, he inevitably... And as it were, effortlessly effortlessly and naturally communicates to us about his triune nature. Uh, The New Testament presupposes the Trinity. As I said earlier, there's not a great deal of straining about the Trinity when you open the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And you begin seeing God and the Word. Uh, You go down a little bit farther and you have the incarnation as the word takes on flesh. But but then in the next breath you have language of, and we beheld his glory, uh, glory of the Father through the only begotten. So it's a, it's, a, it's a presupposed thing. It's like retrospectively we grasp it as we read the text. The New Testament, Testament authors give no hint of innovation on the Trinity. Uh, there's not a digression where the Apostle Paul says, Let me tell you, one of the most clever doctrines I've ever been able to come up with has been the Trinity. He doesn't say that. Paul doesn't operate that way with us. And that's the way we operate with each other. Um, When I underwent my uh, Ph.D. uh, viva in in Scotland in Edinburgh, the the oral exam, I had a very interesting uh, set uh, of folks to deal with. One who uh, uh, was from an evangelical background, and uh, I felt like I knew him quite well. Uh, because I knew his Lord very well. And as I read some of his books, uh, because they tell you who your external examiner is ahead of time. I read some of his works. You always do that. Uh so that you're prepared, and uh, I felt like I could uh, understand the range of answers that he would ask and, and, and a, ran- or a range of questions he would ask and a range of answers that he would give. Now, the other fellow was the da- more dangerous one to my mind. It was, a, it was an internal examiner, somebody brought out of retirement, who was the arch enemy of the man that I did my Ph.D. on. And the only, the only good thing about it was is that uh, I was critiquing, criticizing, and dealing an intellectual uh, uh, serious blow to the man he hated. And so that meant, you know, my enemy's enemy is my friend. Some of that worked in my favor. But I had been warned this guy was a really tricky character and he'd come at you in odd sorts of ways and etc. And, and there was one point in the Bible where he started pressing me on detail about a certain thing. And uh, uh, the more he began to press, the more curious I got as to why in the world is he picking up this thread and pulling it. You know, like you have a cloth and somebody pulls it and yanks and it starts messing up the entire garment. I thought, what in the world is he doing? Well, um, uh, what he was doing was hoping that something I had in a footnote um, was a hint or indication that really the man I had studied had not innovated on this doctrine, but that he, my examiner, had. And he was hoping that I would credit him. And I enjoyed not doing that. Um, so uh, uh, people love to be credited with some sort of innovative idea. You know, the, as Dr. Robert Luce Dabney lays the criticism uh The entire German university system, which our country has swallowed hook, line, and sinker, is based upon the idea that uh, you get a doctoral degree by doing what? Uh, Coming up with something new, which works great in engineering, chemistry, and physics, and is a disaster in systematic theology most often. People innovate. But there's no hint of an innovation on the doctrine of the Trinity. No self-reflection This is some kind of really new, weird thing. Um, I remember when I went to Aberdeen, Scotland, uh, I sat down with a young man that I had known in seminary who was a year ahead of me. He had gone a year before and I sat down with him and he with great excitement after dinner, he said, Duncan, let me tell you, I've discovered a new doctrine here and it just makes all the difference in my life. And I said, well, that's interesting, Sam. What what, what doctrine is this? And He said, it's the doctrine of union with Christ. I said, Sam, we've We've always had a doctrine of union with Christ. What are you talking about? No, no, no. It's a new way I understand it. It's a a very innovative doctrine. I said, what do you mean? He said, I'm Jesus. You're Jesus. We're all Jesus. And I said, said, you're Sam. I'm Duncan. And neither one of us are our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. No, no, no. You don't understand. I'm Jesus. You're Jesus. We're all Jesus. He had taken the humanity of Jesus and turned it into a platonic form. And he was every man. Uh, Not only was he Sam and Duncan, he was Susie and Carla. He was everyone in all of history. And uh, that's the way he got everyone saved. So he abandoned his evangelical faith and embraced universalism and uh, went off on his merry way feeling good about the world. You know, it's really a lot of fun when you don't have to worry about sin anymore. The law, that goes out the window. God can have nothing but a happy feeling towards you because everything's been dealt with and you can sin as you wish. And... uh, Uh, I uh, took great pleasure in uh, packing my family up and fleeing that place and went down to the better school. Uh, There's no hint of innovation uh, on the Trinity in the New Testament. Uh, The New Testament does not have technical theological terms, but it does have the substance of the doctrine. Which would you rather have? Someone who uses the right label, but yet in the product they're selling you doesn't have the substance? Or someone that has the substance... But maybe they haven't labeled it with a soundbite that's so helpful.
1: It, it would be helpful if they just come out and said it plainly. Forget the technical terms, but, you know, hey, we can't have everything.
0: Well, you know, technical terminology is always a shorthand for some line of thought in history. Uh, and uh, But, you know, there's a, wonderful, uh, uh, there's a wonderful illustration of this from uh, American pop culture. Um, you know, of all the hamburger joints you can go to before the rise of all this Mooyah and Smashy Burger and stuff, you know, back in the good old days when there was McDonald's and they were all made out of plastic and they all looked exactly the same, then you had this thing called Wendy's come along, and uh, the way Wendy's advertised its burgers, uh, Dave Thomas was a very smart man, was they had this uh, this uh, little old lady And uh, she had a funny hat on, I think it was, and she was there with her friends, and they were looking at one of those McDonald's hamburgers. Sure, it was McDonald's. And she kept pounding the table and saying, where's the beef? Where's the beef? You know, the point is is that they lack the substance. Uh, They may have the label, but they don't have the substance. Uh, For example, uh, Wilhelm Hermann is the smallest systematic theology on the table over there, and uh, he uses the word Trinity. (laughs) But what he means by Trinity has nothing in common, with what the Christian church has meant down through the generations about the Trinity. He uses Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he's turned Jesus in to um, uh, some uh, sentimental figure that uh, moves us to higher thoughts. Rather than being the incarnate Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. Which he found just to be an incredible idea that no one with any intellect would accept. So... Um, The substance is much more important than the technical terminology. Just because the word Trinity is not in the Bible is not a reason to despair. As a matter of fact, it's a reason to be fairly fairly proud, if I can say that with a small p. I mean, at the end of the day, it shows us that God gave us all the evidence. He laid out the materials. He chopped the wood. You know, he, he prepared everything we needed to build the doctrine. And then he, in his providence waited to help us see that it needed to be constructed until it was just the time when the church needed it. And all the building blocks were there. Yes?
2: I also think that if the doctrine had been laid out systematically somewhere in the scripture, I know my temptation would be to say, well, I've read that, so I understand that now, which would not be the case.
0: That's right. You see, we check the block off, as it were. Uh, I have I have this problem all the time in in, in theology in the seminary, Um you know, you, you, you have a problem in a seminary with guys trying to get in that like don't know the Lord, and they're not converted, and they don't love Jesus. Um, they're very interested. Uh, they're interested in avoiding the draft. We had that for a period of time, or um, they're lost puppies and they need to be somewhere safe. I've seen that repeatedly, and uh, or they are morally mixed up, and their family says, "What are we going to do with Johnny?" Let's send him to seminary. (laughs) Maybe that will help. And, uh, you know, straighten their life out. And it's in spades now because all the seminaries, almost without exception, have counseling departments. And uh, it's very common for guys to go to seminary so they can go across the street to the counseling department and pay a dollar. And basically get counseling free. They can study something that uh, has some intellectual interest to it and then they can uh, go and get all the counseling they need for, for three or four years that's uh, subsidized by the institution because they've got counselor wannabes that have to get contact hours and all of that going on. Uh, it is infinitely cheaper to pay tuition than it is to pay for psychotherapy. And that's a, that's a quote from one of my colleagues teaching in the, in the counseling department some years ago. So people go to seminary for all sorts of reasons, and uh, sometimes they don't. They're just fun, they're just basically not in touch with the substance of the matter. You know, if you've been around uh, to a range of different churches, including churches uh, in, in the mainstream and on the theological left, uh, you know, you'll run into people that are very nice guys, but you just know after you sit and listen to them for a while that they have not the slightest idea of who God is. Um. One of the most popular churches in one town where I pastored was the Unitarian Universalist Church. Uh, they had a prominent position on the main street of town. And they were the most popular with the press and with the city council because every year they went and gave, very publicly, very dramatically, they gave a large donation to the city uh, to help with the common good. Uh, and this was to defray, in effect, the loss of uh, tax. Uh, due to their tax-exempt status from the property uh, that they had. And uh, actually, I know some PCA churches that do that as a way of witnessing to the community. In a post-Christian era, there's there's something, there's a level on which one could make such an argument. Uh, but we won't go into that now. The uh, the, the, the point here is is that uh, the Unitarian Universalist minister, he was just a hoot. You know, we we had a ministerial association in town, and all, all sorts of people were in it, and uh, in a in a former army based town uh with a very strong civic uh, dimension to it there was a professional um benefit to having a connection with with folks of a wide variety of backgrounds for example uh, we solved the uh, transient problem in town with uh with no uh, great great difficulty at all um we all got together and one church had an extra room and another church had an extra computer and another church had a volunteer and and we threw a little bit of money in the pot and And they established an organization that uh, every church in town, when anyone came begging for things, they sent them there. And uh, the first thing they did was they just kept a database. And you know what they found? It was the same people coming through twice a year as they went to California and as they went back to Florida. They were just passing through. And they were using uh, uh, the goodness of the churches in town, the largesse of the churches in town, to fund bus tickets and plane tickets and all Gas and all kinds of things. And then they hit upon an even more clever thing to do, which was uh, uh, we supplied chaplains to the local police force, just volunteers of the local clergy. And, uh, and so then the instruction came to anyone who went to any church and asked for anything. We said, we have a great way to help you. We provide a room. We provide a meal. We provide gas. We provide a bucket. We've got all kinds of things to help you. There's just one catch. And they would say what? And they would, we would say, you need to go down to the local police station and ask for the chaplain. And you'll be fingerprinted and photographed, and then they will give you help. <laughs> they were gone. So there was a, a reason to have a professional organization like that in town. It wasn't a, a denomination or some sort of spiritual or theological union, but uh, the United uh, or the, the the Unitarians were the most popular in town. And and the point here is is that uh, folks who don't have the substance, you can tell, they're nice, they're glad handing, etc. But at the end of the day, you don't know the Lord, and. Um, uh, to paraphrase uh, Wesley, uh, uh, you know that you're in, you're in the presence of an unbeliever. Uh, your heart is uh, strangely warmed, as it were, that you know that you're in the presence of a fellow unbeliever. That's the way someone once paraphrased it. Um, so the point here is is that theologically, the substance of the Trinity is in the Scripture, although the term isn't. And uh, the stress in the New Testament, given this natural Trinitarian background, is on the oneness of God. So it's not like there's a Uh, An emphasis on the unity of God in the Old Testament, the diversity of God in the New Testament. Actually, the New Testament puts a very strong emphasis on the oneness of God itself. Um, We need to stop. Let's take a quick break. Five minutes, get a drink, we'll come back.
3: Folks, let's go ahead and uh, get started with the next part of our course this evening. It's good to be back here with you all you recall last time uh, in our sort of in the second half of our class we were talking about the Old Testament and and some of the implications and some of the, the references to the Trinity there. I thought we might do something similar with the New Testament this evening at least as a kickoff for us. And then we'll talk about sort of how some of the, the church fathers then made use of that. That really is kind of our, our bigger picture and the, the, the point we want to get to later. But uh, you know it's Duncan referenced just a little while ago, it's interesting, as you read through the New Testament with an eye towards the Trinity, the Trinity is clearly just, it's assumed. There's no effort to explain it, there's no effort to kind of justify it, it's just, the, the classic text of course is, is John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. Of course, as you know, that's kind of a mirror image to Genesis 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, Again, in the Old Testament, God is assumed, right? There's no, he's a presupposition. There is no explanation, how did God get here? What was God doing before he created the heavens and the earth? Actually, R.C. Sproul tells this uh, little interesting anecdote about St. Augustine. Augustine is one of my favorite authors, actually. And uh, according to the story, it goes like this. Augustine was in kind of a, a debate with one of those pagans back then. There were many of them. And this clever pagan thought he had Augustine on the ropes, and he said, huh, so what was God doing before he created the world? And apparently, without missing a beat, Augustine simply replied, he was creating hell for curious souls.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and
3: that point goes to Augustine. But, <laughs> Again, just as there is just sort of the, the, the presupposition of God in the Old Testament and the New, there's the presupposition of the Trinity. There's no, it just, it is there, and it's the, the authors, all of them under inspiration, just launch into it, they talk about it, they invoke it as though it's just a, it's, it's a principle that doesn't require explanation. A couple of examples, and if you want to turn with me, we can look at a few of these together. There, there are many, many, many of them. We're not, I'm not going to begin to try to present every New Testament scripture reference uh, to the Trinity. We would be here all night and then some. But here's just a couple. Let's start in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And notice the different contexts of each of these. The, the, the authors keep coming back to it. Here's Paul talking about uh, meat, sacrificed to idols. He says, Therefore, as to eating the food... This is verse 4. Uh, 1 Corinthians 8, chapter 4. Or chapter 8, verse 4. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. And there is no God but one. So there's a, an emphasis here on the oneness, the unity of God, right? So just as we see in the, the Old Testament as well, Duncan referenced reference just a little while, while ago. There is a, a unity of God. If you wanted to flip to a similar reference to the unity, we could go to, uh, to Ephesians chapter 4. Take a quick look here. A couple of verses in Ephesians 4, starting in verse 4. There is one body and one spirit just as you were called to the one hope. You see the theme here, right, in these verses. The one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Again, we could look all over the New Testament. We find this, though, but there is this emphasis on the unity of God. But I don't want you to miss sort of the the tri-unity of God. Let's look at some comparable passages that might help us identify the Trinity a little better. Let's flip over to uh, to Mark. The Gospels, of course, are going to be a great rich source for understanding the Trinity, right? That's where that's where the, the Son of, of God is presented uh, most vividly. And so we can look at that. So look, Mark 1, we'll start in verse 9. Again, these are familiar passages, but I want you to look at them sort of through the lens of, of sort of the Trinity, right? So, uh, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit, right, descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, whose voice is this? You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Here in one paragraph, we see all three persons of the Trinity identified. Now, the relationship between them, uh, the, the emphasis on the Godness of all three of them, maybe that's not as crystal clear in this one passage, but all three of them are identified. And God the Father clearly states, this is my son. This is There's no uh, doubt or no confusion here. Let's look at a similar passage over in the book of Matthew. Look at Matthew 2, with, or, I'm sorry, Matthew 28. Near, near the end of Matthew 28, verse uh, 19 and following. This is, of course, the uh, the, the Great Commission text, right? And what, is the, what does Jesus say as he's ready to ascend? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Now, again, all three persons identified there. But here's a... I never saw this till my friend McLeod pointed this out to me. Again, take careful note of the grammar. Just as when we talked about uh, in that first uh, chapter of Genesis, let us make man in our image. right? There's sort of a, 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 a plurality there. Uh, look, at the, look at the careful language here. Therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name, singular, and then goes on to identify three persons. In the one name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There are three things there, but they have, in a sense, one name. They're one entity. So, again, I'm not trying to explain to you. I had a, I had a student come to me, a student, come to me this week and ask me about the Trinity. I'm sorry, there are aspects of this I cannot explain to you. It is a mystery that transcends human understanding. In fact, we should take some joy in that. This was, in fact, my attack with this poor student. I told her, I said, look, wouldn't you be disappointed if you could completely contain God in your head, that would make you greater than God. If you could fully understand him, if you could absorb everything there was of him, you would be better than him. You would, you would contain him in that sense. In fact, the relationship is the opposite. There are aspects of God we don't fully understand from our limited, narrow, human perspective. And the Trinity is one of them. But this passage, in a way, maybe that transcends understanding, but, but in a way that is also, I think, encouraging to us, suggests, indeed, there are three persons but yet they are one. I don't want to leave out uh, the Gospel of John. Apparently I'm going to leave out the Gospel of Luke because I didn't add that to my notes, but don't want to leave out John. Just go right to the beginning with me, though. Verse 1 of chapter 1. You guys have read this so many times. I'm not trying to insult your intelligence, but again, I want to parse the grammar just a little bit with you. And the beginning was the Word, and the Word was... And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. This interesting use of was and with was identifies him, like he and God are the same. But with, you can't have things that are the same but different sort of be together. It doesn't. Let me drop this on the board if I could here. Slide this out of my way. The beauty of not having slides is that I don't need a table. But let me. Um, let's do this. For those of you, I don't, anybody here interested in like algebra or physics? I hope not. There's, I know there's at least one or two of you, but for the most part, um, this is really this is really for you. All right. I
1: like I like, I like, like the algebra. algebra. The,
3: they are two of my favorite things, but I'm absolutely mean, an amateur. Really That's right. You're, you're kind of yeah. You've grown beyond. Let's um. Let's think of it as, a, as an equation, because isn't this what the what the verse says? The Word was God. The Word is equal to God, right? That's, that's a linguistic way. The, the Word was God is, is this a linguistic way of portraying that same idea. They, they are equal. They are the same. I don't have a symbol for this, but, but then also, the same passage says, sort of, the Word is with God. They're like... Two things that are together. If I wanted to, and this is, a little, this is where the algebra comes in, I can substitute terms, right? If, if word and God are the same, I could substitute here, I could substitute God for word, but now I have this curious phrase then, God was with God. You understand what I'm saying? When I say from a human perspective, that really doesn't make a lot of sense, Right? If I were to say right now, Jamie is with Jamie, you would think there's something wrong with me. Or her, one of us, right? There's some kind of problem. Could be both. Let's not rule that out. It doesn't make sense in, a, in, in linguistic terms, but you understand that's exactly why, I'm sure, that the inspired John, the author here, that's exactly the point. This is, it does transcend our understanding. At one time, he is with God, as in two people in the same neighborhood hanging out together, and he is God. It's exactly the relationship that we expect out of the Trinity. Now, of course, here we're just talking about two persons of the Trinity, but it's a, again, this might not give you a great deal of ease, but it's a beautiful way of expressing that, that plurality and that oneness at the same time. Right here, just one single verse of Scripture. It's really remarkable in that sense. I'd ask for questions, but I don't know the answers to them. Anybody have any questions so far? I've told you everything I know. That's it. I don't
5: even know how to articulate it.
3: Oh, good. That's, that's helpful. If you can articulate it, then I have a better chance.
5: So, when, typically when we think of a being, mm-hmm. we tend to think of it in human terms. Uh, a body. Yeah, a occupying spirit, space. Right, a yeah. Non, a a non-substance. Right,
3: right, right,
5: right. Well, Duncan made the statement a while ago. Jesus took on a human soul. Mm-hmm. So you have God, who is the mm-hmm. Spirit, then you have the Holy Spirit, right? you have Jesus, who becomes incarnate, mm-hmm. and is still incarnate. But you would think of him of ha- as having some sort of uh, soul or spirit in and of himself, yet he took on a human soul, yeah. which I assume is still there. Yeah. And so how yeah. in the world do we think about the fact that you have... A physical being in heaven, sitting on the throne, mm-hmm. that also has a human soul, which sounds to be separate.
3: Yeah, I, I, I don't. I, I, I'm not going to lie to you. Um, I, I warned you. I don't really have a great answer. I can say just a couple of things, which uh, these do not illuminate, but maybe they just compound the problem a little bit. I do know this: the words in the New Testament for soul and spirit are different, right? We tend to conflate them. We think of them as the same. But I don't think they are portrayed the same in the New Testament. So it does imply, I think, there that they are different things. So when we could think about the second person of the Trinity is eternally a spiritual being, but as Duncan says, he does take on humanity, which I think probably... I'm going out on a limb here because I'm, I'm really not a thorough expert, but I think that would have to include the physical and the soul part of a man, right? If he's a man without a soul, that seems problematic for his ministry to me. Again, I could be talked out of this by somebody who knows better than I do, but but it sounds like you're right. I mean, that we're now putting into, we aren't, God did it. We're putting into Jesus, the second person of eternity, the, the eternal one, the spirit being we're putting into him something that sounds like it shouldn't go together, that is not just the physical part, which we've always kind of scratched our heads, but we're glad he did it, but then also the, the soul of a man that would go with that, which now it sounds like, what, two eternal things sort of laid on top of one another? Again, I don't think I've answered your question. I think I've just sort of nodded and said, yes, that is a good question. <laughs> but I'm not charging you anything, so... <laughs> If I could answer that question, I'd charge a lot more than a dollar. Dr. Stacey,
1: I've heard the term mm-hmm. before you, the hypostatic union. Is that a term that Duncan would use and not you? Well, I
3: would not use that term, right. I, just for safety's sake. It's
1: probably worth a dollar. It's got to be worth a dollar, yeah. We didn't have, I mean,
2: and I might go off on this at end, but... The word incarnation, I think, kind of assumes that the, the God part of Jesus was his soul. Does that make sense? Because like, in heaven, I mean, I don't know, right? We'll all know one day, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. But it would make sense, like, the, the meaning of the word incarnation to come into, and so...
3: Well, literally, it means to in flesh, to make yeah. flesh out of, or make flesh of. Right. So so you're right and once
2: sense, th- himself I guess is kind of my idea right right the bible
3: clearly is. says as much right
2: right and so but that's I guess the idea that's kind of driving this thought is Jesus didn't beget himself like he was placed into it and so mm-hmm. would it kind of makes sense to me that like the like part <laughs> this is also very ethereal um, like the part of, God, of Jesus that is the spiritual part of him yeah. would
3: be that. Yeah, no, I, I don't think that even is different necessarily than what Jonathan is saying, right? There is, there is a spiritual part that is the second person of the Trinity, right? There's his, his eternal being from before, right. before the incarnation. And you're right, the word to incarnate, so that's really, ultimately comes from a yeah. verb, right? We make a noun out of it, but it's, it's an act. Mm-hmm. Something out here, put it in there. We right. put it in flesh. Uh, we, as if I have something to do with it. Yeah, it's, I don't know. I, was about to, I almost said something blasphemous, but I'm not going to. Um,
2: <laughs> probably
3: but, but, So I think, Jonathan, you would agree, right? Yeah, there is the spiritual being that is Jesus that does take on the flesh. But the question is, does, it, does he merely take on flesh, or does he take on all the aspects of a human life, which sounds like that probably includes a soul also? And I'm not even going to venture any further.
1: I don't know if that's anything like that you would find in the scriptures. And a soul also conveys a certain being, a personhood. And I just can't believe that the personhood was created at the time of the incarnation. Christ and his personhood is God. He was there. And he came and, and, and dwelt in...
3: Well, is that any different, though, than saying he had didn't have a body and then suddenly had one?
1: Well,
3: uh, both of those are head-scratchers. I'm not saying easy, one, either one's easy, yeah, that but...
1: I would agree with, but, but as far as a soul being created right. at the time of the Incarnation, I don't think that's that's something the Scripture would support. But, as I said, I'm not a doctoral <laughs> theologian, know. <so I'm>... Yeah. <laughs> Fred a class on... Jesus and all the roles that he had. And he said he was fully God and fully man. He man has a soul. Yeah, I, exactly. I can't
3: imagine there's a man God without a soul. That's, that sounds awfully problematic. Yeah. But again, how the mechanism of how that works. But isn't this the point, right? We, we don't really understand that. If we could fully understand that, we become God like ourselves. If you could do it, you would be God, actually. But I don't even want to venture down that road at all. While we're in John, can we go just a little bit further? Just flip a few chapters with me to John 14. This whole section here, um, is actually a very famous dialogue. You know it's a, you know, the part where he, uh, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He, this is a, uh, an exchange that you've you probably read many times. But let's look at a few verses together. Go down to verse uh, 16 with me. Just to start. We'll start in 15 just to catch the context a little bit here. But notice what... Uh, what he says here, if you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Now, this is not a quiz. I think this is actually the easiest question of the night. Who's he referring to? Who's this other helper he's talking about? Yeah, I think it's pretty clear as we go on in the context. It's it's the Holy Spirit that he's talking about. Um, Interestingly, notice the use of another, another helper, as though you've if there's one helper, but I'm going to give you another one. I think the implication is that he himself has performed a helping role, obviously, right? In salvation, that is certainly true. But he's going to ascend in heaven. He's giving you, he's giving us a helper, another helper who to be with you, notice this forever. That's there's not much of a time limit there, right? That sounds awfully eternal. Um, let's go on just a little bit further then. Even the even the Spirit of Truth. That's its name, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Now notice there's a a jump to the future tense. He dwells with you. That is, the Holy Spirit is in the vicinity. But notice the next part, though. But when I send him, as it were, so I, I promise to send it, then he will be in you. That's a more intimate relationship, right? And that really, oh, that's, that's the beauty of the New Testament age. The Holy Spirit dwells within us. So, just stick with me here. Go on to, uh, to verse 18. He will not leave you as orphans. I, I'm sorry, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I'm not sure, I, don't, I want to be careful we don't read too much into this. But this is, at least this is the indication that McLeod makes of, of that passage. He just said, I'm sending a comforter, another comforter, as though I'm not the, another helper. I'm not the one, I'm sending another one. And then in this verse, he says, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. It's a, at least arguably a, a clear connection, stressing the unity. We have lots of examples of the unity of the Father and the Son. Jesus says it, the Father and I are one, right? Many times we know this. But here's a suggestion that the Spirit and the Son are one. He's already said, he's another, I'm sending you another helper. So there's a plurality, but there's also a oneness. I will come to you. So in his in a sense, in his godness, he will be with us always. Even if bodily he ascends to heaven. And just for a little comparison's sake, I want you to hold that thought back up. Just, just for a moment, you have to flip there, I'll even read the passage if you want. Ch- chapter uh, 10, I want to just make a quick comparison here. Chapter 10, verse 30. Um, that, that whole paragraph leading up to verse 30 is the famous paragraph we were just talking about, I and the Father are one. So, Jesus at one point says the Father and I are one, and another point he says the Spirit and I are one, you begin to sort of connect the dots of the Trinity, right? Well, it sounds like they might all be one thing. I could add up here, if the Son and the Father are one, and we make the Spirit the same thing, now I can substitute any of these terms for one another, right? At least mathematically. Maybe algebra breaks down in heaven, I don't know. I don't think there will be calculus in heaven, but I don't know about algebra.
2: You might be right there because calculus is the study of change. Is what that's
3: right, talking. exactly. So yeah, if it's if there's just eternality, kind
2: of then eternality.
3: there would be yeah. So I've
2: done some calculus problems that just might take
3: you <laughs> <laughs> Calculus might actually be a component of hell. I'm not sure. No, that's linear purgatory. Now you know who famously invokes the Trinity, again, he doesn't use the word, uh, but who often does this, of course, is Paul. Almost any time he writes a letter, he makes some kind of greeting or some kind of salutation, usually invoking one or, or two or more of, of the, the persons of the Trinity. Uh, quick example from Ephesians. Uh, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So He, he often does this. It's very common for him. In fact, he will often invoke uh, you know, two or three of the persons of the Trinity there. Uh, but look at what goes on uh, in the next couple of verses. That's a, his that's a salutation. Blessed be God and our Father, the, be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. If you go on and on, he continues that sort of vein there the implication i think in this this little passage is that the blessing comes sort of as it were from one source not two sources he's not offering you two blessings right one from the father one from the son from the father and the son comes one blessing in a sense again kind of it's it, it's a, a subtle hint at both the plurality and the unity of those two persons of the trinity uh, he does the same thing often then in his benediction. So Paul will often start a letter with a salutation that has Trinitarian implications. He will often then conclude a letter, sometimes going not always, not, not as often, but often going back uh, to that same notion of the Trinity. Turn with me just to take a quick look at it to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 13. The final verse of that letter. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all so he invokes the Trinity there uh, but not in a way that um, I mean, it's not as clear a, a union there but but clearly pointing to the three persons at least what I've written on the board doesn't reflect this if I ask you to name the three persons how do you usually answer um, Father notice the um, notice the order is not necessarily sacred notice the order that Paul invokes them grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, he puts the Son first, and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Uh, I only mentioned that, McLeod touches on it, uh, just sort of in passing, but, but we kind of often in our discussions of the Trinity get into this habit of sort of, as though there's kind of a ranking to them, and there is a relationship, there's even maybe something of a hierarchy there, but but notice here, even... Paul is helping us by pointing out that, look, it's not as though one has to come first, right? It's not as though we have to talk about it in this way. You can invoke either any of them in any order, and that's fine. And I'm not, it's, not just a, it's not just a linguistic trick he's performing there. The persons of the Trinity are the same, right? So there really isn't necessarily one that's really more extra God than the other. I'll tell you, as Presbyterians, we probably fall into the, if we fall, in, if we err in any direction, it's in sort of a little extra emphasis on the Father. That's the real super God. The other two are pretty cool. We love them all, right? And if you do this correctly, you emphasize all of them equally. You understand what I'm getting at. Let me tell you, there are other denominations that lean the other dire- some of the other directions. Among Pentecostals, they worship the Holy Spirit, and the other two get like a little footnote. That's not uncommon. There are many... Um, sort of, you know, Bible church, non-denominational places where literally the worship is really, it, it's Jesus Christ they're worshiping. And there's a, there are other persons maybe. They, yeah, I'm, just, I'm talking about emphasis here. I'm not saying anybody, any of us, none of us are denying the Trinity. But we tend to kind of sometimes fall into traps of sort of the person that is most comfortable with us, the, the one whose ministry we kind of identify with the best is the one we kind of put the emphasis on. And maybe even, and this could be a problem if we do it, becomes kind of a little, we tip the worship in his favor. Uh, they're, all, they're all three persons of the one Godhead, right? And so we really should worship them all. They're all an object of, of our uh, adoration in that sense. And so Paul here gives us a little quick indication. Look, the order is not the critical part. You, you, you guys probably don't have that problem. It's probably just me. Let me say a few things here then um, about sort of what, what did the church do with this? In the early, uh, if if Dr. Rankin were here right now, I I have a, I have a personal issue I think with um, at least one of the church fathers, often identified with the doctrine of the Trinity. The person who literally coined the term Trinity was uh, one of the early church fathers uh, from the second century A.D. A guy named Tertullian. You've probably heard of Tertullian before. My problem with Tertullian has nothing to do with the Trinity. Um, he famously, he's the one who, who, who uttered that phrase, what hath Athens to do with Jerusalem? And he meant that pejoratively. And what he meant by that, those are sort of, those are metaphors. What has reason to do with faith? For, in a way, he's put reason in a box, we're people of faith. Now, he's wrong about that. Um... Many Church Fathers after him, I think, kind of realigned that and fixed that problem a little bit. Uh, we are made reasonable beings and should exercise reason. And we are also beings of faith and should exercise faith. We should do both of these things. Tertullian didn't see it that way. He kind of He kind of ranked them. Which is kind of odd for a guy who wrote very complex and intriguing books. He actually exercised reason to a high degree. Um, But but Dr. Rankin has convinced me to kind of put that away for a while, at least uh, to forgive him in my heart uh, for that. And I I think I've almost done that. I'm still working on it. Uh, Because his work on the Trinity is so critical to the development of the church, it's it's almost impossible to overemphasize it. You almost can't say too much about it. Again, when I say he coined the term, and Jamie, you put this very well when, when, when Doctor Rankin put the question earlier. The term Trinity doesn't appear in the Bible. The doctrine clearly does. The word is a great way for us to be able to talk about it. Right? It's very. If I, if I had to every time I wanted to mention the doctrine, I had to explain it in all of its detail. That'd be a terrible way to have a conversation. It would be awful, in fact. So it's no it's no small thing to to have somebody to kind of find a way, a phrase, a term, a word that can be applied for, to allow us to teach others, to teach ourselves about this doctrine. That is a very, very helpful uh, innovation. Again, he's not, he's not leaving the Bible. He's not abandoning Scripture. He's making the Scripture accessible, and that's actually a very positive thing. What I didn't know before I came across McLeod uh, at Dr. Rankin's urging, and I'm glad that he had me read this, uh, what I was kind of surprised by was the way that he adopted other terms that we take for granted. Uh, I have said it already several times. None of you got upset when I said it. I've referred to the three persons of the Trinity. Applying the term person to describe those three members, it was Tertullian was the first to do that. Again, if you look in the Bible, it doesn't refer to them as persons. It doesn't really, Like I said, it assumes their existence. It doesn't refer to them at all except by their names, right? But to be able to, again, as a teaching tool, as a way to kind of educate ourselves and each other, to be able to have a term to describe the individual members of the Trinity, the three persons of the Trinity, is, again, very helpful. And something else Dr. Rankin referenced just a little while ago, uh, to refer to uh, the Godhead, the collected, the three persons together, as we sometimes refer to, uh, the two terms we often use, either the essence of God or the being of God, that also comes from Tertullian. So he, he actually doesn't just synthesize the New Testament teaching on the Trinity. He does it in such a way that others can replicate it. Others can sort of take it up and use that in a way that can be... It takes something very difficult for us to understand, very difficult for us to articulate, and gives us some tools to be able to do that better. So, Tertullian, who... um, it was, uh, again, second century, lived in North Africa. He got all around. He was a, he was a traveling guy, but um, he does that for us away. But let me tell you, if you were, to, if he were here right now, we were to ask him, what would be the thing you would emphasize most about the nature of God? He would say the same thing that I said earlier, that Dr. Rankin said. I, I don't know if you caught this at the beginning of his presentation again this evening. The New Testament, Tertullian, emphasized the unity of God. I don't know um, if you know many Muslims. Muslims typically accuse Christians of being uh, polytheists. They think we worship three gods. Now, you probably scoff when you hear that. Do you feel like you worship three gods? You probably don't. I don't. But you understand how, in a simplistic way, you could come to that misunderstanding. And there's an entire religion of people who come to that misunderstanding. Uh, but Tertullian is not guilty of that. Passage after passage in his writings, he's emphasizing God is one. And yet, in that oneness, there are three persons. Mysterious, hard to understand from a human perspective, but certainly true. There's a, uh, a great line here. Actually, this one actually comes from Augustine, but it's very helpful. It's on page 35 of MacLeod, if you have it. Uh, Augustine, again, trying to kind of help us understand Tertullian a little bit, says, When the question is asked, what three? You know, in what sense is God three? Human language labors altogether under great poverty of speech. That is to say, we don't really have words to describe what we mean by the three persons. The answer, however, is given three persons. Not that it might be completely spoken, but that it might not be left wholly unspoken. So you see his point there, we talk about the three persons, that's a way for us to have a human conversation about the Godhead, but it's not, by any stretch, a complete encapsulation does not completely capture who God is. Our language, as he says, language labors under poverty of speech, we don't, we can't have that, we don't have the words to have that conversation, we don't have the minds to create the words to have that conversation. But the words we do have are sort of the, the best mechanisms available for us to be able to talk and think about the nature of God and the three Persons of the Trinity.
2: After all, if we used words that did not convey any meaning to our minds because they were so elaborate,
3: right, right. it
2: wouldn't be very much just words at all. We might as well just sit there and look at each
3: other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We could grunt at one another and accomplish the same end.
1: And not wisely. There's
3: a whole... Um, Conversation we could have about sort of the nature of language and where it comes from and 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 how language can only respond to our thoughts; it cannot produce our thoughts. But unless you're postmodern, then it's the other way around. One other person I want to mention, and we'll wrap up for tonight. And that is sort of in the in so as, as in the unfolding of the Trinity. Understand this is why this is this is why this is, this is how Dr. Rankin convinced me to be uh, kinder towards Tertullian, who he and I have a long history together. Tertullian and I we did not get along, but We stand on the shoulders of others as we interpret the scriptures, right? So, the first time, imagine being the church in Corinth, and you get Paul's letter. And you read it, and that's interesting, and that's, wow, I'm glad Paul took the time to write that. There's lots of good stuff there. You read it a second time, maybe a third time. And I say read it, of course, somebody has to read it to you. There's only one copy, so we're not going to, like, leave it with you overnight, right? Just to, (laughs) we trust you and all, but this is Paul's letter, all right? Maybe we'll make a copy or two. We'll see how that goes. But we read it together, we, we talk about it, we read it a second time, a third time. But how often do we have to read it to really start to understand? And then, let's say we get the first letter, but what about all the other letters he wrote? And, and what about the other inspired writings? What about the Gospels? What about the letters of others, like John or Peter? Or, and that, that's still on top of the Old Testament, which for a few centuries they were working on, but you understand what I'm getting at here is simply this. The people who lived immediately after Christ did not have the benefit of centuries of faithful men and women, but mostly men, working through those scriptures, presenting them, kind of helping us open up our minds to understand them better. I mean, Ultimately, you need the Holy Spirit to understand the Word of God. That's not, I'm not saying that's not the case. What I am saying simply, though, is we take for granted... What people had to work through over a long time to get to. We, we don't want to sort of put ourselves in the position, which is often the case, I think, among among those of us alive in this generation. We we look at the past and think, oh, those those silly, foolish people back then, right? The, oh, the the ancient Greeks were a bunch of dummies. They didn't even have cars. Yeah, well, turns out that they were especially in the first few centuries of the church, they really did have great insights, but they didn't have them all collected together. They couldn't, they couldn't go. Frankly, most of them didn't have the whole Bible even. And I say most. I mean the large majority of Christians do not have access to the collected works. They might have a few copies of this. They might have a few letters, maybe a gospel or two. Rarely, it took a long time before you could say, here's one place where all the books are collected together and you can read it and think through it. That comes only much later. And so when Tertullian examines the doctrine of the Trinity, he does a great service to his brothers and sisters. They did not have access to the things he did, and he's able to do this in a way that he can then share with others. Others can, you know, other pastors, bishops, others can take that teaching onto their flocks, their congregations, and begin to replicate it and eventually come to a clearer understanding of the Scripture.
5: Why was he able to um, have access to this?
3: Partly because he was a scholar, who, like I said, he he operated in North Africa. He went around to lots of different places. He wasn't stationary. You understand? We are pretty mobile as a people, right? We get around a lot. Uh, the vast majority of humans living in the second century AD were born in a town, grew up in that town, lived in that town, died in that town. That was their place, and that was the totality of their experience. Tertullian is unusual in that he did move around and did work with, spend time learning from other great leaders of the church. So he w- has a very unique experience in that way. So he is able to kind of, in a sense, he does see all of the writings of scripture because the places where they are, even though the copies maybe haven't circulated fully yet, he did get access to, to see much of that and to hear from the great men who were already working through other things and to kind of put all that together in a way that turns out to be very helpful for us. Let me just say one other thing here. I want to talk about just two minutes on another important figure. You've heard this name before. You've heard of Athanasius. Athanasius lives in the 4th century AD, so a couple hundred years after Tertullian. His, maybe his greatest contribution, he's a key figure in the Council of Nicaea. Have you ever heard of the Nicene Creed, which we often tend to recite, the Nicene Creed was drafted, it was a, sort of comes out of that council, and one of the leading figures of that council, one of the great leaders of that council, was, was Athanasius. And uh, the reason this becomes important for us, for our conversation here, is that at this point, a certain heresy had become very common in the church, known as the Arian heresy, maybe you've heard of the Arian heresy. It's that heresy that simply denied the deity of Christ, that he wasn't really God. So, you understand, it's an attack on the Trinity. If, and so if you take Christ out of the Trinity, what's well not a Trinity? But then what's the rule of the Holy Spirit? Maybe he's not God either. You understand how it all unravels if you begin to do that, right? So, one of the reasons, in fact, let's be clear, one of the reasons the whole council was convened in the first place was to get a handle on, was Jesus Christ the Son of God and with God and God, or was he something else? And so the council comes to the right conclusion... But only because people like Athanasius really helped drive that point home and, and to, dig to dig into the scriptures to make that so to make that point so clearly uh, i won 't go into it now there 's uh, the great schism east West schism, which uh, Duncan briefly referred to, actually uh, sort of comes out of that question itself, but we 'll talk about that another time. Uh, I want to say one thing uh, next time we get together two weeks hence we 're actually going go, we 're going to look at two chapters, chapters three and four out of MacLeod. Um, so if you get a chance to read those beforehand, please uh, take a look, and we'll we'll talk about chapters 3 and 4. Any questions, worries,
1: I did
4: I did concerns?
1: do a little Google searching, and apparently if the belief that Jesus did not have a soul is a heresy called Apollinarism, mm-hmm. which is condemned by the council of Constantinople in 381.
3: Yeah, it comes a little bit after Nicaea, but yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and it follows from it in a sense. If he's, if he's, yeah, not me. <laughs> That's right. Well, we'll just put it in the kitty for next time. Let's um, let's have a quick word of prayer, then we'll we'll get out of here. Gracious God, the uh, the doctrine of the Trinity and the the mystery surrounding the existence of of the three parts of God is it 's profound, Lord, we know that, but at the same time uh, let 's be encouraged we have a we serve a great God, the God that we worship is beyond our full comprehension, and yet you 've chosen to reveal yourself you've you 've given us your word you've you 've given us the revelation that helps us to see you better uh, out of love you 've done that, you had no obligation, but you did, and so father, we we want to take heart from our discussions tonight and, and for the rest of this term, in fact, as we try to learn more about the Trinity. Father, thank you that you are, in fact, a God who transcends us and that we can look to you for the great strength and power that you provide. We ask that you would bless us now as we depart. In Jesus' name, amen.